We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast bringing you independent and interesting ideas from Tasmania. My name's Dr. Neve Chapman and I'm joined by my co-host Meredith Castles and I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording, the Palawa people of Lutruwita, and acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on where you are listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. So today we're going to be talking about something exciting and a little bit revolutionary and something that I uh, hadn't really thought about before, which is criminology and a tech crossover. So I'm really interested to see where we're going with this. And as always, if we're talking tech, we're joined by co-host Meredith Castle. So Meredith, can you tell me a little bit more about our expert guest today and also the subject we'll be discussing? Vicky's a lecturer in criminology at Utah's with research areas in female offending, uh, historical criminology, which is so cool, um, as well as sexual violence, child sexual abuse, uh, digital sexual harassment, feminist criminology practices, and criminological teaching and learning practices so basically superstar um she's here on the on the show to talk about um how her work has actually crossed over into my area of tech in a way so we're both looking at learning and teaching practices using citizen science approaches um specifically citizen social science approach in this particular case so i've gone ahead and given this a very cool name today is techno criminology it's very cool yeah so let's just get some um background if we can um first of all can you first give our listeners a bit of a rundown on what the modern criminologist does and why you got into the area in the first place? Okay, so uh, modern criminologists will focus on a lot of different things. Uh, they'll focus on offenders, on victims, on the criminal justice system, uh, policing, prison. So basically anything to do with offending or victimisation when it comes to crime. So it's very, very broad. A lot of people think that it's just about becoming a police officer and it really isn't. Uh, because that would be, you know, very, very limited. And in Australia, we take a very different view to criminology. So places like the US, for instance, criminology is about the criminal justice system. Uh, and that's what they're focusing on from a more policing uh, sort of perspective. Uh, whereas here in Australia, we take a really broad understanding of criminology, which makes it a lot more fun for mm. us, I think. Cool. Um, so also just a little bit about you personally before we yep. go on to some cool projects. Um, you published a book called 19th Century Female Poisoners. Yes. Three women who used arsenic to kill. I yes. love it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why you were driven to write about that particular topic? Uh, so that one came about because I was looking at some newspaper records of um, – women who were committing crimes uh, in the 19th century and found that there were these spate of poisoning, uh, poisonings that were happening and no one had really written about it or rather when people did write about it, what they said was that these women were just, were just evil women and that's all that we need to know about them. And my perspective was, well, it's probably a little bit more complicated mm. than that. So uh, I went to Britain. I was actually very, very lucky at that point, you know, Pre, what's going on now? We won't talk about the the <laughs> c word of, of, that we've got. Um, but 
went to the went to the UK and went to some of these villages uh, where these women were from, wow. and realised that there was more to the story. Um, specifically, that yes, chances are they probably did do the poisonings. We're not talking about innocent women uh, who were hard done by uh, the criminal justice system, but uh, they committed these poisonings for, because they were living in abject poverty. Uh, they've had very difficult lives, and so they they use poison as their way out of everything that they were going through. So Vicky, when you were talking about looking at criminology or you're looking at something like this where you're delving a bit deeper into something that's quite historical but also complex, yeah. what kind of things are you looking at with criminology? So are you looking at like social, environmental factors that contribute to somebody offending or individual factors? What kind of things do you start to unpack to know a bit more about that person? the offence committed or the whole pattern of events that could have taken yeah. place around it? Uh, so it is it is a combination of those things. So criminology is very interested in the social. It's part of the social sciences. It's a branch of sociology. So it isn't really as focused on the individual as what psychology tends to be. Psychology is very much about the individual offender and what their motivations may have been. Uh, from a historical criminology perspective... I'm interested in the social, so what was happening at the time. I'm interested in the environmental, in uh, what sort of uh, situation the offenders may have been living in. I'm predominantly interested in female offenders, so I'll be focusing on, for instance, gender relations during a given period. Uh, also looking at other things like employment opportunities, uh, economic opportunities as well, child rearing, so all of these other factors that are external to the individual that may have an impact on them. And some of these can be very difficult to find, obviously because we've got 150, 200 years between us and them, but we can try and unpack some of that from newspaper uh, reporting, from parliamentary records, from other archival records, from the court cases themselves. So all of these little bits and pieces start to start to come out once you go digging and looking for this information. Yeah, that sounds fascinating, like a real detective work yeah. uh, in yeah. a sense. Excellent. And bring it back to tech just for a second, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because that's what I do. Um, Technology is inescapable in pretty much every industry. Um, so criminology included, as we yep. know. Can you tell us a bit about how you're, you in particular are using tech to teach criminology and also how it might be being used in the industry as well, if you know? Uh, so it's unfortunately um, not as often or not as popular in use in criminology. Uh, the use of tech tends to be uh, very much pedagogical mm. uh, technology. So, for instance, yeah, just the online sort of apps that we can use when it comes to teaching. And likewise, when it comes to um, criminology as a whole, a lot of research is happening into digital uh, criminologies, um, techno-criminology, mm. uh, <laughs> but it's not really translating over. The research isn't really translating over into teaching. So most of what I use is, uh, as I was saying, a bunch of pedagogical tools that I teach students with, but then there's also other interesting ways that we can use technology to try and teach the students some other skills that they might not have access to using those pedagogical tools. What do you mean by like a pedagogical tool? Is that like um, just like an online learning platform or like using video or audio rather than like 
going back to chalkboards and paper projects. <laughs> <laughs> so it is it is learning management systems, so online um, platforms for it. It's also things like, for instance, putting uh, embedding podcasts into um, you know into the site for the students, videos as well. Uh, sometimes it's using uh, tools to get the students not just writing essays. So, for instance, I've had the students writing blog posts uh, for me. So going out and doing an audit of a public area, and then coming back and writing something that's uh, not your standard academic essay. But then there's also people using uh, tools like Padlet to get the students to put photographs up. So obviously these aren't very uh, active ways of using technology. Uh, They tend to be a little bit more passive in some ways, but it's moving away from the chalkboard Mm -hmm. style of teaching. Yeah, I love it. Okay, stick with us for part two and we'll be talking about a very exciting teaching project that Vicky helped design to get students engaged in historical criminology. You're listening to That's What I Call Science and today we are talking about using citizen social science to engage students with historical criminology. My name is Meredith Castles and I'm joined by Neve Chapman along with our expert guest criminology lecturer Dr Vicky Nagy. So now we're going to talk about a very cool project that combined the use of non-expert investigators in the form of your students to execute, sorry bad pun, had to put that in there, um, investigations into historical crimes and criminals using digital resources. So that resulted in a sort of collated information that both helps um, archivists and uh, researchers and furthers the knowledge of the students at the same time. So for our listeners, this is citizen science in a nutshell. So that's the the methodology where there's just so much data out there that these days that this is impossible for experts to actually have the time and resources to process it. So they outsource it to interested citizen scientists who process it for them. So this episode is about citizen social science due to the content in criminology. So, Vicky, can you walk us through what drove the Offender Profiles Prison Registers and Criminal Characters Project? What a name. Yeah. (laughs) So, the Criminal Characters Project, I might start with that. That's a project that was set up by a colleague uh, of mine, Dr Alana Piper, at University of Technology, Sydney. And so, as part of her uh, research funding, what she could organise with the Public Records Office of Victoria was to digitise the prisoner records. And initially, it was the prisoner records um, that were pertaining to women between 18 1950 and 1920 uh, but obviously with additional funding we've been able to push it out to 1940 so it's been an excellent way of seeing how the criminal justice system and prison uh, sort of changed over a, an extended period of time and then down the track we've been able to get the male uh, prisoner record into the project as well. So Alana runs this uh, project and the Volunteer transcriptions, uh, the citizen social science side of things, happens through Zooniverse. And so the project and the uh, digital photographs of these prisoner records are uploaded into Zooniverse and then available to everyone around the world to you know volunteer and be part of it and transcribe them. So these prisoner records are, generally speaking, we're talking about something that's like an A3 page and that A3 page will have all the uh, biometric data that was available uh, at that time. So things like the person's height, their weight, 
eye colour, hair colour, uh, you know, whether they had a big forehead, a small forehead, whatever else it may have been, where they were born, how they got to Australia, and then uh, details of the crimes that they committed, where they were tried, who they were tried before, and then also how they behaved when they were in prison. So things like they were a good prisoner or a bad prisoner and what happened to them during that time uh, that they were incarcerated. And in the more recent uh, prisoner records, we also get mugshots. So it's really cool to see um, how photography has developed over time, how it's been used by the criminal justice system. And all of these records allow criminologists and historians to gather different bits of data out of it. So, for instance, Alana is really interested at looking at the mugshots to see if we can trace fetal alcohol syndrome. So seeing if uh, that's something that crops up um, over time and seeing if that's something that we can learn something about as well. Wow, so that's just from facial indicators of fetal abnormality. Yes. That's amazing. I have one question about using citizen scientists. Yes. How do you ensure the quality of the data? But also this sounds like something that could be quite not traumatic, but definitely taxing. Mm. So what kind of feedback have you received from citizens about the process of taking part in this, of going through these people's stories, which I don't know, every time I read about convicts or like, you know, historical people in the criminal justice system, I just always feel like they were just treated so badly for mm. such menial things. Yeah. And it's a really good question. So the first one about how we ensure that the data isn't just people just writing in whatever they want is that each record is transcribed by three people. And so once uh, the transcription is um, goes through those uh, three individuals and it's retired, um, so in quotation marks, retired, um, and then we go through and we clean up the data as well. So that's one way that we ensure that you know, with the 19th century records, cursive handwriting has kind of gone out of fashion now. Uh, for a lot of people, it may be very difficult to try and understand what's on the record. So there are gaps in the transcriptions and that's not a problem because every little thing helps. So every little thing that people are able to add to the transcription makes it a little bit easier for us and for research assistants as well. Uh, with regards to how people respond to it, the responses so far have been overwhelmingly positive. Uh, some people have found uh, family members through it, so have been able to go back and go, oh, that that was a name that I remember my grandmother mentioning at some point, uh, or, you know, we've had some sort of link to that family. So it's been positive in finding those lost connections over time. Uh, but for a lot of people, it is that feeling of, I can't believe that at that period you would get for instance, being put into solitary confinement in prison because you were reading a book. Nowadays, we're happy when the prisoners are reading. We want them to be spending their time reading. But at that time, it was a case of, no, that person isn't uh, either paying attention to the trade that they should be doing while they're in prison or not paying attention to the religious instruction that was taking place. So this is frivolous activity. We'll put them into solitary confinement. So what do you think the student's main gain was from using the online platform? You said Zooniverse, for example. For everybody else, that's an um, online citizen science platform that's established. Um, so what do you think their main gain was from using it for this particular research? So with this uh, research, for a lot of students, it was being a little bit more active uh, in the research process. 
So realising that research doesn't just have to be searching for things in a library catalogue or trying to find things on Google Scholar, uh, but that they can be active in giving back to the discipline as well. So in Alana's case, she's in history. um, I'm in criminology. Um, The Zooniverse, so the criminal characters... um, project now has also the Tasmanian uh, records available and uploaded. So what that means is they're not just helping criminologists better understand things, but helping, for instance, um, the Tasmanian public get access to this data. So once the transcription process is complete, what we're going to do, clean up the data and that data gets sent back to uh, the state archives and they can make it publicly available and people can search it and use it for, for instance, family history um, or you know any other interests that they may have in Tasmania's past. So the students, it's a active form of research. It's accessing primary records or primary sources that they otherwise wouldn't have access to. So as much fun as it would be for all of us to head into the archives uh, and have, you know, 200 students touching these very fragile documents, it would end very badly. So this allows them to access those primary sources but using technology so that we're not actually damaging those sources as well. That sounds really smart. So it ensures that you're preserving the original records as well. So you mentioned that Alana's work is looking at um, can we use these photographs to determine that fetal alcohol syndrome has been linked to, you know, maybe higher rates of criminal offences. But what other kind of key outcomes or research questions do you think will be answered by having something that's like a repository of information in this way? Yeah. So some of the things I've used the information for, for instance, is looking at women who entered uh, the prison system at an older age and what their experiences were. So, uh, for instance, what were the crimes that they went in for? Uh, What does that tell us about the changing face of women's criminality? Uh, What does it tell us about the sort of illnesses? So as part of this uh, register, any illnesses that a person went in with would also be noted. So it gives us a a chance to see uh, not only the criminal justice um, workings, but also how, for instance, um, medicine and access to social welfare has or hasn't changed, uh, sort of... Also looking at the cer- certain things like um, at what points, if we look at this data longitudinally, at what points has there been a drop-off in offending and what sort of policies may that line up with. So, for instance, we notice that with female offenders, uh, there was a drop-off with uh, women being incarcerated when social welfare was introduced. So when education became more widely available during the 1870s, uh, that resulted in a steep uh, drop and also when the old age pension was introduced, that led to another steep drop. So we can sort of trace the changes. Yeah, wow, that's really powerful to also inform like current social reform and policy. Um, I'm really interested there that you're looking at older female offenders. What kind of age range would you be talking about there? So... Old uh, is is a funny way of putting it. I suppose we're using old not perhaps the way that people today might view old. Oh, such a subjective term. It, right? it is. Yeah. It is. And sometimes people get very um, offended by how we use the term old. So we're using the term old as how the government today actually um, states what older 
uh, Australians are. So that's people aged 50 years and above. So looking at the prison records, we took that into consideration, although uh, during that period, during the 19th century, older would have been someone perhaps in their 40s as well. So we're looking 50s and the oldest uh, woman who was uh, imprisoned was 92 years old. So there's four decades uh, between the youngest of our oldest women uh, and the oldest woman who was there. And by and large, for those women, they often came in, obviously, with a lot of health issues. A lot had been living rough, had been homeless, uh, had been left destitute as husbands had died or um, left them uh, to their own devices when women couldn't have access to jobs, um, you know, bank accounts, things like that. It meant that if a husband or a male family member left, they were left in a situation where they would probably end up on the street. Um, and women were coming in with mental health problems, physical health um, ailments as well. So across the initial 6,000 uh, records uh, that we investigated, uh, probably about 700 women fell into this category of aged 50 and above when they were first incarcerated. Yeah, right. Wow. Yeah, cool. That sounds like a really powerful tool. Um, and we also had um, an episode recently on age and ageism. And pa- uh, Dr. Peter Cook had said pretty much most of us consider old or older as 15 years older than whatever we currently are. <laughs> and that's why I was like, oh, I wonder what age would have been considered old oh, in the yeah. 19th century. Okay, listeners, stick with us, and we'll be talking more to Dr. Vicky Naji about the future hold, what the future holds for this kind of research and teaching tool. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we're talking about using citizen social science to engage students in historical criminology. Uh, my name is Meredith Castles. I'm joined by Neve Chapman, along with our expert guest criminology lecturer, Dr. Vicky Neji. So, citizen science and citizen social science are basically relatively new concepts, <laughs> uh, but they're growing in legitimacy. They've got more kudos these, these days as more research is being done in the field, um, in fields such as ours, for example, technology and criminology, etc. Um, so, we, because you did this with students, like, is this type of unit going to be a recurring offering at UTAS? Do you know? Uh, so the hope is that there will be a historical criminology unit in the future. Uh, unsure whether it'll be in the coming year or the year after that, but the plan is to have something like this run uh, as a whole unit. So the way I've been using citizen social science uh, with the students has been on an assessment basis and the hope is that if we can make it something bigger uh, there's some really cool ideas of what we can do with technology and with historical criminology and obviously using the students not as guinea pigs but as active (laughs) (laughs) active participants in criminology. I think that's really great because, um, you know, as a student, I probably would have valued doing something that's real applicable and it's not just another essay or another blog post or another submission. You know, you're doing something and you can actually talk about the experience and reflect on it and get some real world viewpoints of um, what it's like to do research actively. One thing that I wondered that might feed into this learning and teaching style is like what kind of careers do people pursue after studying criminology and how does this maybe support them to think independently or creatively or critically that would support them in the next steps in their career? 
It's a really good question. Uh, so a lot of the students who are studying criminology come in because they want to help people and that's a very noble reason to be um, coming into social sciences. So a lot of them want to be working either within the prison uh, as correction staff or as non-uniform staff. Uh, some want to be working as social workers, uh, child protection, uh, police. Uh, some are coming into criminology because they think it's really cool because they've listened to a couple of podcasts or they've watched a lot of true crime stuff on Netflix. So they're wanting to see if what they're seeing... Um, you know, in the in the media actually lines up with uh, real life and real world experiences. So for a lot of students, what they've found that this um, project really helped with was humanising offenders, was getting across uh, very clearly that these are not monsters, these are not people to be scared of, that people end up in prison for the most minor of offences. Uh, so for a lot of students, what they're walking away with is perhaps a more realistic understanding of people who get involved with the criminal justice system. Fantastic. So I guess the what's next question is really where we should go. So like what what is next for techno-criminology? <laughs> um, hashtag uh, revolution now that you've had this successful citizen social science offering. So do you think we're academically ready to hand over the task of processing data to non-experts on a larger scale yet? That's that's a really, really good question because I think a lot of times as researchers we get scared that we're, we don't want to let the data out of our hands and we don't want to let people who don't have a lot of experience uh, processing that data uh, anywhere near the data because heaven forbid they might get, you know, something wrong. And I think it's a really good way to show that if you let students in to this world uh, and if you let them know why you're letting them in, into this world. You're not just wanting to use them as free research assistants. You're using, you're using them as part of something bigger that feeds into what they're interested in. And then they come into it with a really positive outlook and really wanting to support the project and wanting to support what it is you're doing. So I think that it's having that conversation with criminologists and other social scientists to say you've got to let go of the reins a little bit and uh, perhaps come up with ways that you can involve students a lot more. I know when I've spoken to colleagues about this, uh, they've looked at me with awe and wonder in some respects because they're thinking about the possibilities that they can have uh, for their research. So it just doesn't cross our minds, I think, to use um, the possibilities that we have with technology, not just with the research that we do, but with the teaching that mm. we have as well. And students love it. They want to be a part of something bigger than just writing an essay or doing another multiple-choice quiz. <laughs> <laughs> as much fun as those are <laughs> yeah, for, for sure. the students. Well, thanks so much, Vicky. That's a really fascinating insight, and I really admire your tenacity to pursue a citizen science project in this way. And it sounds like it's had really good outcomes for their students as well, making them more empathetic in the in the field they're pursuing. Thanks so much to our expert guest, Dr. Vicky Nagy, and our co-host, Meredith Castles. I'm Dr. Neve Chapman, and until next time, thanks for listening. Goodbye. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science at all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. 
Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.